Hey, I am Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 138 of the North Meet South Web Podcast. Well, the Nuggets won it in five. And I think the last time we were on our call, I think you said that. I think you said Nuggets in five. Mm-hmm. And yep. you you spoke it into existence. You you spoke it out spoke to the universe. Yeah. You made your wishes known. And there was the the gentleman's sweep. As as we call, it. I don't know if that's a common thing over there, but my friend and I we we always refer to it as the gentleman sweep, where you you, you kind of let them win one. You want to you let them win one. You you kind of about it. It's a gentleman's yeah, you, game after all. But yeah, um, yep, indeed. Yeah, I feel I feel okay as a Lakers fan. You know, having been swept in the Western Conference Finals uh-huh. by the uh, the ultimate NBA champion. Ex- um, exactly. Good on him. Yeah, dude, Jokic is a beast. Dude is unstoppable. Yeah, he's um. Well, this was always the thing with Kobe, right? No, wait, oh, one, one more thing. Sorry, sorry. Jokic or Jokic? Jokic. That's Yo- a, okay. Jokic. I I usually say Jokic, but on occasion I forget myself and say Jokic. Jokic the Joker. Because okay, you want to say Joker, yeah, you want to yeah, say exactly. Joker, but they end up, yep, yep, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, that ahead. was. Kobe. I mean, this was always the thing with with Kobe because you know he grew up playing in Europe, um, and they European basketballers, especially when you see the FIBA World Cup this year. Um, the Europeans tend to be a bit more fundamentally sound. You know, it's not as much open running. There's not, you know, I think the three ball is a lot more common now because that's just the way that the world game is. But in terms of the FIBA tournament and the FIBA rules, it's there's a lot more defense. It's a lot more body on body. There's a lot more fundamentals in it, which just isn't, like you don't see that in the NBA so much. It's all about, you know, flashy passing and flashy dribbling and things like that. And it's, you know, you could see that through his play, just that he's a much more fundamentally sound yeah. player. He's, yeah. he's disciplined, he's, he's got, smart. Like, he doesn't always have to be, like, he's not a superstar that always has to shoot the ball. Granted, he shot something like yeah. 80% from the, the field today, but, you know, he had three shots to half time. Like he he was finding his teammates. He you know he gets on the boards. Yeah, he's and that's just the, the presence thing. On the floor. It's like he's such a threat wherever he's out on the floor. So you have to respect his right. shot. And so because you have to respect his shot, you can't just like leave him open. You know you see so you so sometimes and they also don't want to double team him either because they know that if they do, he's going to find that open guy. And so you're yeah. sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And and uh, the other thing too is like if he gets anywhere inside the paint, the um. You know, the announcer said this too. He's got such great touch. Like, it seems like the guy just can't yeah. miss. Like, even yeah. with all sorts of, like, getting hacked and crazy pushed around inside, he just always finds a way to get the ball in. And it's just wild. I've yeah. never seen anybody do that. Um, it's really cool. He's, I mean, you know, he's he's so big and he's so strong, but he's got, you know, those those guard handling yeah. instincts and yeah. abilities. It's not like a Shaq sort of deal where Shaq would just body everybody and just move yeah, them out of the way powerful. and just dunk the ball, right? And it's like, he's not that way. He's just, it's more finesse. Um, it's crazy. It's, it was really fun to watch. So I enjoyed it. Yeah. I didn't get to watch all the games. We Took were on vacation. Nuggets. Yeah, we were on vacation last right, week. Yeah. Um, but uh, we got to, I'm glad you said something because I watched the last minute of it tonight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. It took, took them 46 years, but they got one. And, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. I think they're they're in... You know, they, as long as they keep their players and their and their team together, I think they're in a good position to sort of make another Repeat. run at it next yeah. year. That'd be cool. Start yeah. a little certainly, dynasty there. Certainly in a good possession. Yeah, and good on the Heat as well. You know, finishing eighth, losing the first playing game to then make it to the finals to to beat all of you know the good teams in the East apparently, and then to you know even to just push Denver to to win a game 
in Denver, no less, where they had been undefeated in the postseason, is you know a testament to to those boys and to Coach Spolstra. Indeed. So, congrats, Nuggets fans out there. Way to go. Way to stick with your team for so long. And um, 46 glad you got, years. Glad you got one. Glad you got one. Well, hey, yeah. um, we should uh, possibly transition to the code portion of the show. We talk about mm-hmm. all the fun stuff that we're working on. The last time we were talking, talking a bit about Bitwise Operators. That was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Also, I had Steve uh, McDougal reach out to me and say, I would love to hear you describe the game of lacrosse. I think it was after I described the game of Aussie <laughs> rules football. And yeah. um, I think he was mocking me a little bit. So I did my best to describe lacrosse to him. And uh, mm-hmm. I think I did okay. I think I did okay. But anyway. Was, is, that, was, uh, is that a common game? Like I know no, the no, only... East Coast. It's not. East the Coast only, US maybe. Okay. Sure. The only connection between lacrosse and American culture that I know of is like American Pie. Where oh, like Oz, okay. He played lacrosse in that, I think, that movie. Okay. It's... You I never saw like American are, Pie? No, I, I've not watched it before. I know the movie. I've never uh. watched the whole thing. I've seen parts of it. Um, but yeah, no, I feel like it's a East Coast sort of deal. There are pockets of places where it's really mm-hmm. popular, but it's not like ubiquitous. It's certainly not like an American sport where like everybody right. plays okay. it. Um, you know, I'd put it right up there with like Ultimate Frisbee. <laughs> That's probably that's probably not fair. It's probably quite a bit more popular. I'm gonna have all these people who are like lacrosse players, like you know, mad at me for saying that. But I, I've, I mean, yeah. nobody around here plays it. I know I, I uh, used to go work at a camp up in uh, upstate New York, and there was a, a decent number of players up there. Uh, but that's like East Coast, so yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's some folks out there who play it. Um. So yeah, anyway, North, yeah. Northeast, you're at. Yep, Northeast. Yep. All right, so yeah, this time, this show, this time around, what do we want to talk about? I've got, uh, I've got, um, let me think. We're talking about switching over to Veet from Mix. Um, mm-hmm. Did you guys mm-hmm. end up doing that for your switch to Laravel 9? No? No, I think, I think at the moment, um, or actually maybe, I haven't really been much involved in that sort of Laravel, because we had two separate apps. We we have, we've got, you know, the Laravel backend, which serves a JSON API, and then the front end is a Nux.js gotcha. app at the moment. Okay. And so we're, completely we're transitioning at the moment. Completely separate repos. So we're, we're transitioning at the moment to Inertia and sort of combining the front end nice. and the back end. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of work going on there. I think, I think maybe... And Nux is with Vue, right? So you're going to use a Vue right. front end yeah. instead of React? Okay. Yep. Yeah, so... Yeah, so we've we've been using Vue all along, so we're we're sticking with that, and that that you know that's it's a big task to kind of because we want to keep the two working side by side while we do you know a bit by bit rewrite of of the different features in the in the application. So I think as part of that, they may have switched to using Vite, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Okay. I know that they did. Yeah. you know we've got all of the asset bundling and compilation and stuff done in GitHub Actions now, and so okay. that will you know, do all the, the generation, it'll generate a re- release table. And then part of our deployment is to pull that down, untar it, ship it across to production, and, and then it all kind of behaves itself that way. So, so sorry. Um, so yeah. I want to talk about this real quick. I want to talk about your CI pipeline for your asset compilation. So I want to talk about for that for a second. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to talk about as well is as you're switching over to that, and this is sort of just 
something I wanted to talk about anyway, is Pennant. So Laravel Pennant and feature flags. Uh, I want to talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit. We started using Pennant recently in a couple of different, well, really only in one area. And I have another area that we might use it in that I want to talk to you about. And so I'll bring, I think those are a couple of things that we could talk about. But first, let's talk about, oh, dang it. What was the first thing I said? Oh, tarballs. So yeah. So, so when are you actually generating the assets and are you using something like airdrop to save them somewhere or like what's the, what's the process look like for you? So, you know, everybody who's not familiar, which I'm sure most of you are, but just for the sake of everyone, we'll say that when you push up to GitHub or when you push up to wherever it is, wherever you're going to do your deployments or whatever, uh, in Laravel specifically, you know, there's Laravel Mix or more recently, uh, Vite, which has been used to compile JavaScript, CSS, and zip them up, uh, compress them, maybe do some sort of post-CSS processing to strip out any unused classes that are present in the uh, CSS framework you might be using to make sure everything's nice and slim and G-zipped up and all set to go so that it's nicely optimized for your users. So that process has to take place somewhere. You have a couple different options. You could do that locally and push it up into the repo, which many people discourage. You could have your deployment process actually do that. So like when you're actually on the server itself that's doing the deploy, you can build those assets on the deployment uh, server. Or you can kind of do it in a couple different in-between spaces. And so what it sounds like to me is it sounds like at some point during your pull request and merge process, you're building these assets, saving them into GitHub, and then pulling them back down when you're doing your deployments and possibly when you're doing your tests. So I'm just curious to hear about what that process looks like. Yep. So, I mean, our pull request runs using the, I think, without Vite. So we are, I've just had a look at the the repo. So we are using Vite to build our new Inertia application stuff. And then our GitHub CI process is kind of split up into three workflows. We've got a a pull request workflow, which is responsible for running tests on non-draft PRs. Okay, um, so once I, it's also once I, responsible. That makes sense. So like once, so once a PR comes out of a draft status, that's the only time it starts doing tests. So if you have like a yeah, if you have a PR that's in draft and you're just like, hey, I'm just pushing up stuff, it's not going to start running tests on it until you're out of draft because it's like, we, what's the Correct. point? We know it's in progress, but yeah. it's not ready to be going yeah. to production yet. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we'll do things like type checks. Um, so we're using Sparsi's Laravel data to handle kind of DTOs in the application, but then that also gives us the ability to sort of push out TypeScript objects into yeah, yeah. the front end. So we have that's this, really nice, actually, super nice. Yeah, so we've got this consistency between the type definitions in both the front end and the back end without having to sort of manage all of that manually. The pull request flow will also do um, static analysis using Laristan. It'll run Pint as well. So all of that stuff happens on draft PRs and on, um, you know, ready to review PRs. The tests themselves, because they take about 10 minutes or so to run across the full suite, we only do that once the PR is kind of deemed ready to review so that we're not, you know, burning through CI minutes on on stuff that, you know, we know is broken or not really ready um, sure. and might change. So that's one thing. When we merge to master... We've got two workflows that then run. The first is the is the build workflow. And the build workflow itself is kind of responsible for pulling down all the dependencies for both backend and front end, installing the composer dependencies, installing the NPM dependencies, so all of the, the front end stuff, 
and then runs a few different NPM scripts from our package.json to generate some styles for PDFs that we kind of do with WKHTML to PDF at the moment. So it's generating all the styles for that. It's then generating all of our assets for the for the front end and then running the build step, so npm run build, and then kind of handles all the stuff responsible for sending source maps to Datadog. It then generates a table of the release directory and then uses the release strategy to then say, okay, let's create or let's tag a release in GitHub and then give it that table as like the release file so that we can download the release for any tagged release you know, if you ever if you ever go to, um, I think we've talked about Better Display Pro maybe in the past, which is like a macOS application. Sure. Yeah. Um, that allows you to kind of futz around with screen resolutions on your Mac to enable high DPI on, on displays that don't otherwise have high DPI and things like that. So when you go to the releases tab of a of an application like that, that kind of builds assets or builds binary files you can download like the mac os version like the intel or the arm version or the windows version of linux so this is we're doing the same kind of thing we're generating the the built release directory and saying hey github for this tag this is the release file that we need and that kind of all goes in there so it's the same kind of process as something like lasso where those bundled assets get put into s3 well we're basically taking the entire you're just doing it on github yeah we're taking the entire application directory with all of the compiled assets, with all of the vendor files, with everything, and then sticking that into GitHub so that we can download you know, this one table that has everything in it. And then a second process that runs when the build is complete is then responsible for pulling down that directory, running the composer installation, and then you know doing all the deployment steps and then shoving that off to our application service. So you use GitHub to actually you use GitHub to actually do the yep. deployment. Yeah, so essentially uh, we've got Envoy, which is like the self-hosted task runner sure. version of Envoy, which we yep. spoke about uh, last time. Or well, maybe it was on Laravel News. Um, and then we've got a couple of scripts there that handle um, or a couple of tasks there that handle doing sort of the zero downtime deploy stuff. So it will go and deploy that release and do you do like web hooks from github to that envoy no so envoy is just like you create an envoy.blade.php file which defines all your tasks okay and that that is essentially like a blade wrapper around shell scripts okay so we just run um, a deploy release task in there or a macro as they're called in envoy and that's responsible for grabbing down that release directory from github untiring it um, on the application server running our migrations, running our cedars, and then doing the simlink cutover and restarting FPM and all of that kind of stuff. So it's, um, you know, the hand-rolled version, I so suppose, that, of doing Envoy. So, but, but you're doing that deployment step on GitHub onto a different server? Or you're... So yep. how are you pushing stuff from GitHub onto that other server, I guess? Do you have like SSH keys so, or something in GitHub, like yep. secrets or something? Okay, okay, I gotcha. Yeah. Yep, so we've got uh, our deploy user is set up in GitHub um, and it's responsible for for doing all that. So it can then SSH using the deploy keys that we've set up for that user from that GitHub sense. to the application server. They just run commands um, to do all that, that for us. on that server to do yeah. all that stuff. Gotcha, yep. gotcha, gotcha. Yep, so I mean, it used to be that there were a couple of us that had access to do that and so we would just, you know, on our local machines run it and it would then do the same process. But now that we've got a, a bigger team and we've, you know, we're following more strict... Um, guidelines around deployments and security and all of that kind of stuff. That all kind of happens with GitHub CI so that, you know, no one has access to production kind of thing except for 
um, the deployment things. It's all kind of automated and, you know, re-repeatable and, and all of that good stuff. Okay, so one other question then. So when you're doing your tests, every single time you run a test, does it have to NPM install and then NPM run build, even if none of the assets uh, have changed? So we've got cache depend. So GitHub has the notion of, of caching. Um, sure. So you can mm-hmm. give it like a cache directory and then just shove that in there. So if you don't change your composer dependencies or you don't change your NPM dependencies, it will compare. I think we do like a, a SHA or a hash of the composer lock file. Okay. And the package.json. And it will say, you know, if, if these files haven't changed, then the dependencies haven't changed. So give me the file out of cache. Um, that corresponds with with those lock files. And that way, you know, the composer install is like a two-second process versus, you know, 30 seconds or whatever it is to, to do that. And then at the end of the process, we also then cache and then write back to that file. And if nothing's changed, then no problems. Uh, and if it does, then, you know, the cache is always... So it's, it's you know, cached between not only multiple steps of or multiple jobs of the same workflow, but between workflow runs as well. So if nothing changes for, for NPM three, four, run build releases... As well? Nice, and so yep, that's so where you don't do that. you don't have to do that sort of whole airdrop thing because it just uses a a cache uh, location on GitHub. Yep. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and GitHub handles persisting all of that. So it's um it's one of those things that's really tedious to set up the first time, and it takes several iterations because you've got to you know you can make sure that the file the the workflow configuration itself is is valid, but in terms of making sure the steps are right. And, you know, we had for a while the steps out of order so that cache wasn't actually being set properly. And so it was always doing a composer install every time. But, you know, you work through those things and, you know, for next time kind of thing. Well, I might have to hire you to do that for some of our apps and then we could take it from there. <laughs> we'll be like, okay, Michael, I need you to look at this and make sure that we're doing our caching right on this. And um, because we're, we're transitioning from doing it locally to doing it all in CI. Which I'm cool with. I'm totally fine with that. Uh, but the, one of the things that was really annoying to me was having to have it do npm run build every time, and 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 that was just like it made the tests go from you know not that long to really long, and so wasn't yeah. a fan of that. So I wanted to change that. But then the second part of actually having it build. So Envoyer, we use Envoyer, so we might end up having to still do the builds on the server itself, unless I don't know. Unless there's a way to tell Envoyer to pull down. I mean, I think it does pull down a, I don't know. There might be a way to do it. Oh, yeah. I'll have to think I'm not, about it. I'm not sure if Envoyer, if Envoyer, I'm pretty sure Envoyer must do it on their build runners rather than, or I don't know. The, I mean, the main thing is that we didn't want to have to compromise the the performance of our production environments by running you know, an NPM process or whatever, or a composer install on the, on the server. Right. And that's, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm in total agreement on that. Exactly. That's what I don't want to do either. And so it's just trying to determine. So the nice thing about having it in GitHub versus having it in something like S3 is with S3, you have to have the secrets everywhere, right? You have to have those S3 secrets like on your deployment server and you have to have those S3 secrets on your, on GitHub and all that stuff. Whereas with, like, with GitHub, you can just say like, well, I mean, GitHub's the thing running the action. So GitHub obviously can write to its own release location, you know? Yeah. And if you're running a GitHub action to go say, go go send this file over there, you still, again, have access to do that without having to add extra secrets. Yeah. All over I the think place. also if... Now, 
I'm not the expert on AWS, but I think also if you, and this is in, in air quotes, if you set up your stuff properly, your EC2s will automatically have access to your S3 buckets. So we don't actually have S3 keys anywhere in our application. We can figure like the bucket name, but the EC2s by um, IAM policy or role or whatever yep. have access to the, the buckets that they need to have access to. And so it all just works for those servers. And we don't have to worry about, you know, external people having access to it because there's no secrets around. You know, we don't have to worry about secrets being exposed anywhere or pushed to GitHub by accident because they're just not used. Exactly. Because the servers, yeah. the servers themselves have access to the buckets they need to, and that's all controlled by IAM. Yeah, uh, makes you sense. Know, infrastructure, uh, whatever the access management stuff is in, yeah, in AWS. That's what it is. Yep. Yep, roles and policies and users, yeah. So all of that stuff is set up in in such a way that it it just works. And if we ever need to test anything, you know, we can jump onto the server and then we can access those buckets directly without having to, you know, have credentials or have local dev environments or anything. You know, my MacBook doesn't have access to those buckets because, you know, I can jump through the jump host to to get access to those things and and run using the AWS CLI and things like that if we need nice. to test anything. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay. So that's that for the deployment stuff. Like, very nice. I like that. The next thing I wanted to talk about was feature flag stuff. So have you looked at all at Laravel Pennant? Yeah, I did. I actually had a conversation with Tim about it on the back of that bit masking stuff that we were doing. Yeah. And I was kind of in two minds about whether we build our own stuff, like keep down the path of using our own stuff. Because we've called, we've called the field in the database that houses all of these different things features. And so, so you have a we're features kind of column. thinking, we have a features column that has, you know, the bit value in there. Um, and I was, it's not really guarding access to anything in the application. Is it like a user or a tenant preference or is it a feature? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's more saying, you know, this lender supports these features. It's not saying that you as an application user have access to those features. It's saying that, you know, lender A supports consumer secured loans and commercial secured loans, but they don't support com- uh, consumer unsecured and commercial unsecured loans, right? That makes sense to call it a feature then. Like, I think that very much squarely fits in the, in the, in the context of a feature. Yeah. It is a feature of the lender. And then, and then sort of where it tripped me up was that, you know, the, the pennant docs actually say that you can use the trait and you can apply this to kind of anything on the, on the model, like on any model, typically yeah. it's for a user and it's for guarding access to, to things within your application. Um, but we, we ended up sticking with what we were doing just because we weren't really using it as a, as an application guard as such. And we didn't really want to have like the, the strings in a database table somewhere um, where it's saying, you know, this has got consumer dash secured and consumer dash unsecured and whatever else. And then, and doing it that way. So in this particular instance, we use, the feature flags, but I think in other places, especially once we get all this inertia stuff going, we're going to start using the, we're going to start using pennant for feature flagging for different parts of our application where we're saying, you know, here's a new feature that we want a certain subset of our users to have access to as, as beta testers, or, um, you know, you're paying for access to this extra feature that no one else is, you know, that other people aren't paying for. So we, and we're going to use the, the pennant stuff for that kind of feature flagging. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and like that's that's that was my understanding, and that was like my hesitation in in our scenario with the lenders 
of, you know, do we use it, don't we use it? And I think for that that kind of stuff, which is more what it's aimed at, rather than trying to kind of bastardize it to do the bit masking that we wanted to do. The thing is, you still could use the pennant stuff and use that column. You could kind of use those in concert together. You could use yeah. the column in your in your tenant table to set or to be inspected to determine if those features are set as enabled for that particular tenant or whatever, right? So you have in pennant, you have the feature name, which is what we have is we have those features stored in an enum, right? So we mm-hmm. say features and then we, you know, you can we can break them out too. We can say like core features or dashboard features or you know, yep. contact features or something, whatever you want to call it, right? So you can have different sets of enums or whatever. Uh, so we don't mm-hmm. just have magic strings floating around. We do have them defined somewhere in a place and then, you know, yeah. you go from there. But you have the feature name, then you have the scope. So the scope is sort of how it gets applied to the particular user or group that's that's being, that's trying to view this feature, right? So... Um, by default, it passes the user in as the scope. So if you say feature, you know, it's so like if you're using like a directive or whatever, you say like feature and then you give the name of the feature item there. And if you, that's all you give, mm-hmm. then it's just, okay, well, that's the, it's a feature for a particular, the user that's logged in, right? So that's great. That works and says, it basically says giving, giving me the ID of the user that's logged in. Does this person have access to this in the features database? Does this, this person have access to this particular feature? And it'll just have a true or false, right? Yes, they do. No, they don't. However, that context can be something like the user's team. So if as a second argument to that feature directive, you passed not the user, but the user arrow team, what that will do is that will create a new record in the features database that will say instead of app user as the thing it's inspecting, it'll say app team. And then what it'll do is it'll inspect to say, does the team that this user belongs to have a uh, record in the database that says true or false? Right, And if they do, it sort of looks at that and says, yep, okay, we'll respect that. If they don't, what it'll do is it will use the resolve method on that feature class to then invoke your logic to determine should it be true or false, right? So if it has not been set before, it'll invoke that resolve logic and then determine should should it be true, Mm -hmm. should it be false, and then it'll do it. So then, then it just does it once like per team or in your case, per tenant. So what you'd have to do in the case of what you're talking about is you would just pass in, hey, here's the feature. And then as a second argument, you'd pass in the tenant and away you go. There you go. So then you have um, what what that would happen at that point then is in that class that you're resolving. So let's just say that, you know, I don't remember what you said, what kind of lender it was or what kind of like, like give me an example of one of them. Yeah, give me an example of one of the types. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we got, you know, uh, consumer secured. Okay, so consumer secured feature. So you'd have consumer secured feature, comma, uh, and then you'd pass in the tenant. And then what it would do is inside that resolve, you would get a instance of that tenant. And then you could say tenant feature is consumer whatever enabled, right? Does that exist? Can I, can I do that? And if it did, then you could say, okay, well, then go ahead and it would set it to true. No problem. There you go. So now everybody who comes to that um, would get that feature. Now, the reason why 
I, I'm sort of pushing for this on my side of things as well on our team. Um, because I got some pushback from like, well, maybe we could create our own version of this really easily. And it's like, we could, but you throw away all the stuff that the team has already worked on, which is all the mm-hmm. testing stuff, all the directives, all of the helpers, all the other things that have gone into this. And it's like, it's not that it's, it's not that you can't write your own stuff. You totally can, but it's a bit arrogant for me to think that I have the time or, or the manpower to make something as good and as robust as what Tim yeah. has made over months of time, right? With feedback from, from those, yeah. some of the best developers in the world. And me be like, yeah, I mean, that doesn't work for my use case. I could probably just make something better. It's like, ah, I mean, you could. Yeah. It, there's definitely, you, you can, yeah. right? There's, there's, there's certainly arguments to be made for like um, tools that just fit your specific use case and nothing else. But yeah. um, a lot of times you can leverage these things, even if it, even if what you're doing doesn't fit the, you know, specifically the thing it does, you can still leverage that tool sometimes to, to get what you're after. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. This was, this was another one of my hesitations was as I was kind of expanding on the functionality that were needed, I found myself creating like a supports method and then a supports any, and then a supports all. And then I'm looking at the pennant docs. I'm going, Oh, it's got all of this stuff. Am I doing the right thing here? Right. Right. And that's, that's sort of like, so like right now we're sorting, we're having this argument a little bit, and our team of like, oh, there's these features and they're features. Yes, they are like, we're rolling out like, hey, we have this new dashboard versus the old dashboard and they can opt in to use the new dashboard or they can say, no, I want to go back to the old dashboard. And that totally fits within this mm-hmm. idea of like a feature flag. Mm-hmm. Anything new that we're pushing out, we want to check and say like, there's a possibility this could break. I've tested it locally. It works great. But in production, it might not yeah. work as great. We can say, okay, roll it out with the feature flag. Then I just enable it for me and the other developers. Then I enable it for a beta group that we have. And then after that, I give it to a general general release, give it to everybody. So I get from like that to like the general release by like the end of the day, right? And then I'm watching Sentry, yeah. making sure there's no errors. And if it doesn't, you know, if there is no errors, no problem. We just remove the feature flag and we're all good. Everybody's all set to go. Mm-hmm. However, I feel like you could use it for preferences as well. Like, okay, if somebody prefers, like we had an example where somebody preferred their dates to not be like May 10th, 2023. Instead, they wanted 5, 10, 2023. They said that's easier for them. So it's like I could yeah. invent something of my own to say I'm going to have a user preferences table as well. It's like, or the other thing that Pennant offers is it's not only just a on or off, true or false. You can also include like a context with a particular feature as well. So one of the examples they give for like if you're doing like A, B, C, D testing, you can say I have a a button color feature sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I can include as a piece of, I don't think it's called context or something. I can include like, let's say I wanted to make it titanium blue or something. I could say like, yes, this person has this feature enabled in the the context. The additional context that's attached to this feature for them is titanium blue, whereas somebody else might have it enabled and it's Corvette red or something, right? And so you can pull that context from the feature and do that as well. So if somebody had that feature enabled, whatever, you could say like, no, I want to do I want to do um, a readable date string, or no, I want to do a you know, a numeric date string or something like that. So mm-hmm. again, you can sort of use it how you how you want. It seems like they've thought through a lot of it. Yeah. And the argument that my, my some of my team is making is, well, I mean, like, let's just make our own thing. And I'm like, ah, I get that, but 
Also, yeah. I kind of just like using the leveraging the tool that we already have instead of making another thing. Another thing to understand that we don't, you know, chances are we're not going to document it as well as Laravel has it documented. You know, right. it's just yeah. you, you get all of the work of that team by using the features that they've already built. So, yeah. yeah and that's, you know, that's always the kind of consideration that, that you've got to make. You know, and the fact that you can use it for, as you say, Boolean on off, but also for custom you know, flagging of things is is really useful as well. So I think wherever, and, and this is, I think someone, oh, I can't remember who it was, tweeted, you know, what is one piece of advice that you would give for someone starting out to Laravel? And I think my my one biggest thing is to kind of stick to the conventions and to expand on that, stick to the, you know, the framework, stick to, you know, if it says do it this way, it's not just do it this way arbitrarily, but it's do it this way because we've got the experience, you know, we've got 10 years of doing it in a certain way. We can see that it's maintainable. And it's not It's not to say that that is always going to be the case in every situation. Obviously, things are dependent on different things. You know, there's a million different applications out there doing a million different things. But in the in the most general sense of the way that you go about things, I think sticking to the conventions and sticking to what the documentation suggests will get you a long way in most cases. Not in all, but in certainly in most cases. And so, you know, don't go in and reinvent the wheel if you can avoid it. Um, yeah. I know that there's, in our industry, you know, not invented here. Syndrome is a is a thing that plagues a lot of people. But, you know, if you as you say, if you can get, the documentation and the test and the breadth of functionality and the breadth of real world usage of, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of applications using these things in a very real way to solve, you know, real business problems and real customer problems and things like that. You're going to have a good set of tools that are going to get you a long way. Yeah, agreed. I believe also there is, you can write custom drivers for Pennant as well. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to write a custom driver so that like, would use some of that bitwise stuff that you're talking about, you could probably do that too. So mm-hmm. the driver might only be where it's actually storing the values instead of like how it's resolving it's storing, them. Yeah. yeah. But the, I think again, by you default, have to, there's, there's database you, and there's there's array. Yeah. And, and um, there might be one other one that they made now. Maybe like Redist or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. However... The resolve functionality does everything you would need. There, there I did find a yep. couple gotchas while we were while we were discovering how to use this. The, I think the major gotcha I found at Pennant was that I was assuming that it was going to resolve the method every time. So when I would check for a feature, I assumed that it would run the resolve function that determines if it should be shown or not every time, which it does not. It does not do that. No. Once it has it in the database, it doesn't ever resolve it again until you either delete that record from the database. Like you can do like it a purge. Like a purge function yep. or something yep. like that. You do yeah. like purge. So you say like, hey, everybody who's already resolved this, purge that out and start fresh again. Like try it again. So like they say basically, if you change the logic in how you're resolving mm-hmm. something, uh, then yeah, just purge the feature from your database and then it'll repopulate it. So as soon as somebody goes and somebody hits that directive for that feature, if they don't, you know, if they don't get it, then it'll, it'll do false. And then, and that's it. So, you know, if you're like, if you're testing locally and you're messing around with the resolve function and you're trying to mess, you know, 
screw around with it to see like if you get the result that you want. Make sure you're kind of deleting that record each time, or else when you change that resolve functionality, it's not going to. Ch- doesn't matter. Like, doesn't matter mm-hmm. what your method is now doing. Whatever it resolved it as last time is what it's going to be, unless you go delete that record. So. That took me a bit. I was like, dang it, why is this not changing anything? Well, it's because you already have a record for it. So in that case, maybe the better way to do it is like to use an array instead of a database. Maybe it resolves it every time if you're using the array driver instead of the database driver. I'm not sure. But in any case, yeah, it's it's a great it's a really great library and I'm super excited to be using it. So Yeah. Beauty. All right, man. Hey, we're gonna yeah. wrap up. I have one Indeed. thing. There was yep. there was an email that went out to Laracon AU subscribers people that have jumped on that mailing list the um we put the pricing out we i had a bunch of people reach out to me and say that you know with getting the companies to to do it and to sort of set aside budget and to plan for accommodation all that kind of stuff they needed to know you know how much money they need to ask for from their businesses so we send an email out the tickets don't go on sale for another couple of weeks so first of july they'll go on sale um but ticket pricing will start at uh, $349 for individual tickets um, and for companies and small teams and things like that, there'll be other discounts available as well. So, yeah, getting getting to that sort of pointy end, I'm going to have to start reviewing speaker submissions. If there's still people out there that are thinking about submitting, where you know we'll be looking for speaker submissions right through until the end of July, so you can do that as well. Um, but all the details are on the website at laracon.au, but I'll put links to all that in the show notes. It's, um, yeah, it's only coming around pretty quickly. We've got what, July, August, September, four, four and a bit, four and a half yeah. months. Yeah. That's very cool. Laracon US is in, in a month's time or so as well, isn't it? Yep. A uh, month and seven days. You got it. So get my talk all prepped for that. My state machines talk. I'm super excited. It's going to be great. It's going well. Yeah. Going yeah. Well. I've got, I've got, um, for sure a lot of polishing left to do. But uh, yep, mm-hmm. it's it's going good. And I'm super excited. It's gonna be fun. Excellent, excellent. Yep, yep. Look look forward to to hearing it and seeing it. And um, wish I could be there to cheer you on from the from the cheap seats. But uh, I'll have to watch it after the fact. I'm sure it'll yeah. be great. It'll be fun. I'm really excited. I think it'll be a good time. And um, excited to see everybody again. It's gonna be great to be all back together. Mm. You know, it's been so long. So uh, we'll definitely miss yeah. having you there. But. Um, We'll we'll take some photos with you know arms around our invisible Michael, <laughs> um, or when, or I need to print out a big cardboard cutout of you and take it around with me and be like yeah Michael's nice. yeah that'd be fun <laughs> hey everybody thanks so much for tuning in find show notes for this episode at uh, northmeetsouth.audio slash one thirty eight uh, hit us up on Twitter at Michael Dorena at Jacob Hanna, or at North Meets no sorry I did the I did What's it wrong. North South Audio and the show notes are northmeetsouth.audio slash 138. Podcatcher of choice, five stars would be amazing. Thank you so much. We will talk to you next time. We'll see you. Bye. Bye.